Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. We are on to another episode my name is Dwayne Osterlund, and I'm your host. And today, our guest is Ben Spielberg. He is the founder and CEO of the TMS and Brain Health Clinics. He is a specialist in neuroscience, neuromodulation, and neuroimaging. And today, he's going to talk about TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and how that can help people who are struggling with addiction and the underlying mental health issues such as depression and anxiety. So Ben's going to talk about how that works in the brain, how TMS works and can help individuals who are struggling with these issues and really bring them a, a lot of relief and return joy and passion back to their lives so that they don't have to, to suffer with some of these issues. It was great talking with Ben. He really understands the neuroscience behind this, and it was a pleasure to talk with him about it. And so I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it. Before we start, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please write a review in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. That really does help the Addicted Mind podcast get found. And I really appreciate it. And I do read those reviews. And it means a lot to see that this is helping a lot of people. So I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for those of you who have done that. And also think about joining our Facebook group. You can go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast. Click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Ben Spielberg, and he is going to jump in and maybe talk a little bit about his own journey in mental health. But we're going to talk about a specific topic TMS, which stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation. Did I get that right, Ben? You did. Exactly right. Awesome. 
All right. So jump in and, and tell us a little bit about you and how you got into this work and why do this work. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for having me. So I originally started working in the field of mental health in around 2010. And my first job in mental health was as a biofeedback technician at a substance abuse and recovery treatment center in Los Angeles. So my job, my role there was really working directly with patients and basically hooking them up to computers and different devices that track their own physiology and then helping them do exercises to then sort of get some volitional control over their physiology. So for instance, there's something called heart rate variability, which is this metric that you can look at that is really kind of this all-encompassing health marker in a lot of ways, where you want sort of more heart rate variability, which is associated with better longevity, better stress response, better emotional control, and things like that. We were also doing specifically biofeedback on the brain, which is also called neurofeedback. And in, in neurofeedback, um, basically people would have electrodes put on their heads to monitor their brain activity right. in real time. Right. And they would watch a computer screen and they'd see, they'd watch like a movie on the computer and the movie would pause when the computer detected that they were experiencing what we call like a maladaptive brain pattern, basically. Over time, as you keep doing this, your brain kind of learns how to be more neuroplastic and create better pathways because it's sort of like, like holding a mirror up in a way. So I did this for a few years while I was an undergrad, and I was fascinated at the amount of change that we could create in people that didn't involve any you know, medication or any intervention otherwise, basically. So people were, you know, they would be 30 days sober and they'd be, they'd be very emotionally dysregulated, right? So, you know, one little stressor can sort of trigger someone into this sort of existential crisis as what happens in early sobriety. But as people did neurofeedback, they became so much more resilient to all of these stressors. And moreover, it helped with anxiety, sleep, mood, and things like that. And so this was like very different than like your standard talk therapy modality, which, you know, was, I guess, much of the standard of a lot of addiction treatment, go in, talk to a therapist, talk about why you're doing all these things and try and change it. You don't do talk therapy in, in this part of it. It's, it's very interactive, right to the brain. That's what it sounds like. Right. Right, exactly. And the cool thing about it is, you know, so many people would would come to treatment who had been in treatment before, who had done so many hours of therapy in the past. And with neurofeedback, all you have to do is show up. It, do, it doesn't really matter what you think about it, what you're thinking about. Your brain is picking up on the signals regardless. And so for the people who are, are done with talking, the people who have kind of exhausted that option, it was a, it was a great option for them because they just you know they could just sit there and their brain sort of does the rest which is amazing because if you're under a lot of distress and you know especially like when you look at a addiction sometimes that's all you can muster is to is to show up because you're you have all these other crises going on and and it's and it can be so difficult to make any kind of change exactly exactly 
And so, so that's what I that's what I did for basically all of my my undergraduate education. I was working at two different substance abuse treatment centers, doing neurofeedback, working one on one with patients. And when I graduated, I I really felt like I needed more of a um, a hard science understanding of everything, just because there are kind of little tweaks that you know one can make with neurofeedback, like changing the the placement of the electrodes or changing the, you know, what the threshold is on the computer to give that person feedback. So I really wanted to understand that at a deep level. So I got into a a master's program in neuroscience at Columbia. And I went there with the idea that I'd really specialize in this overarching field called neuromodulation, which is basically sort of all of these non-pharmaceutical ways to create real changes in the brain that are, you know, very evidence-based and and supported in the literature. So neuromodulation, what does that mean? Yeah, so it means that these are devices that can change the brain, right? So if the brain is dysregulated, these different different interventions can help to re-regulate the brain or rewire the brain in some way. Right. And I mean, we used to really think the brain was so static and, you know, you're kind of like after the age of 18, it's, that's what you got. It's done. But we really know now that that's so not the reality. Like our brains are so adaptive. Yeah. They're, they're changing all the time. You know, our brains are changing right now from this very conversation. And it's so funny. I remember as a kid, people telling me your brain doesn't change, you know, once you're over the age of 18, right, your brain is, is fixed. These are all the cells that you'll have for life. These are the structures that you'll have for life. And now we know, you know, it's just, it's just totally inaccurate. Your brain's changing all the time. Some areas are more plastic than others. Some areas can grow new neurons and some, you know, it's a little harder, but it, it's interesting how that's really shifted over the years. So using neuromodulation, we're specifically targeting areas we want to change in a specific way. Exactly. Exactly. So like with TMS, for example, with transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is an FDA approved treatment for depression, we know that depression, well, we've heard that depression for many years is associated with this... um, the serotonin deficiency or a neurotransmitter imbalance, which I'm sure most people listening have heard before ad nauseum. But the neuroscience research shows that's not really an accurate representation of what's going on in the brain when people are depressed. And so what's really happening, and research has shown this for the past 30 years now, is that these specific parts of the brain are actually underactive. Right. So there's a part of the brain called the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is a mouthful. And it's basically the the left top side of your head. And that area has been shown to be underactive in people with depression, meaning that people with depression, this part of the brain has less blood flow, less cellular metabolism and less activity in general. And so with TMS, it's basically this device that emits these magnetic waves. And when you target it to this part of the brain specifically, it actually increases activity in this area that is previously deficient. 
right? So when people do TMS, you know, they come in typically five days a week. And, you know, week by week, the symptoms of depression start to go away, just as this other part of the brain starts to come back online. So you're putting this device near the brain that emits a strong magnetic pulse Mm -hmm. that then gets that part of the brain activated, which then starts to alleviate that depression because that part of the brain just for whatever reason, I guess, I don't know if we know why, isn't active, isn't, isn't moving and that causes that depression. And so this magnet, what does it do? How does it make it active? So it, it's actually, uh, the machine itself is actually fairly large. It's about the size of a refrigerator. And the the strength of the magnet is actually the, the strength of one MRI machine, but it's a very, very focused signal. And so basically, you know, the brain cells communicate via electrical conduction. And so when it has this big magnet on the scalp, that magnetic field basically tells all of those brain cells underneath the scalp to turn on, which then sort of turns on this pathway of these other cells that are connected to the original cells turning on again. So basically, they're kind of, it kind of acts as like a, a remote to turn it on, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it's like it's getting it getting it activated. It's stimulating those nerves. So this mm. to me kind of says also one of the reasons for some people you can't just think yourself out of depression, right? Cuz a lot of people mm. like just feel better. Just just you know, you should just uh, think positive thoughts. I mean, that might help to a certain degree, I guess, but you really need to activate these parts of the brain. Is that a correct statement? Yeah, yeah, that that's exactly right. And I think that, you know, a lot of people, I think especially in the AA community, you know, there is this idea that you can just do therapy or that you can do the steps or go to meetings and kind of talk through your depression, which works for mild cases, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy is, is definitely right, evidence-based right. treatment for depression. But when it's not working, there's kind of nowhere to go unless you're actually creating real changes in the brain. Otherwise, you're just going to plateau because the the underlying neurobiology can't really support anything else. Right. It's like stuck there. It's it's stuck in that. Exactly. In that. And you can't think your way out of it. And I think that's why it's so important for people to understand that sometimes we need these alternative ways to get the brain active again. And now we know the brain is so, like we said earlier, it's changing all the time. We can do this. Right, exactly. Right, so tell me a little bit about like how this, because it's also used in depression, but how is it also used in like anxiety, OCD, and all of these other issues that sometimes kind of go along with depression? Yeah. So, you know, in our experience, TMS is most helpful for depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, and chronic pain. And basically, you know, it's it has this really fascinating issue. And this is kind of why, as a, a researcher, I got interested in this in graduate school, is you have sort of these an, an infinite level of 
parameters that you can change in the TMS device itself that can really impact kind of how it works and, and what it's working for. So for instance, you can actually change the placement on the brain. So instead of targeting the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex for depression, a lot of practitioners will actually target the right side, so the opposite side for anxiety. And likewise with OCD, there's another part of the brain that we tend to stimulate as well called the anterior cingulate cortex, which is, you know, very heavily implicated in OCD and tends to sort of have the same issue where it's basically stuck in, in OCD as well. So by changing the placement, you can really change exactly what you're treating. And then you can continue to change little parameters as well, like the, the duration of the session can sometimes have a pretty big impact or the actual frequency or pattern of stimulation itself. So another question I wanted to ask you was how ADHD and addiction play together and how actually TMS can, can help with that component. Yeah, well, a lot of people don't realize this, but people with ADHD are much more likely to be addicted than a neurotypical person. I, I forget the, the ratio exactly. I think it, it may be two to three times more likely to be to, to suffer from addiction, as well as, you know, way more likely to be incarcerated and to ha have really a, a number of issues in life. So, so before we go a little bit farther, real quick, for people out there, let's just define ADHD. We hear it thrown out all the time. What does it actually mean and what's going on there? And then let's go into a little bit how TMS changes that and shifts that. But first, let's just define it. Yeah, so attention deficit hyperactive disorder. So there, there are sort of three main types of ADHD uh, in the literature. So one is the sort of you know, what, what you usually think of with ADHD, which is the hyperactive subtype. So you think of, you know, a boy in school running around who can't sit down, can't sit still, things like that. And then you also have an inattentive subtype. And so these are people who they don't have the hyperactivity. These are people who zone out a lot. It's really hard to focus on things, but they don't have the issue of, you know, running around, bouncing off the walls and things like that. There's also a mixed subtype where people sort of switch between the two. And there's sort of a newer controversial subtype called sluggish cognitive tempo, which is kind of very sort of similar to the inattentive subtype. And in the brain, you know, we see there are multiple different attention networks that are and can be implicated. Generally speaking, you know, ADHD is an issue of sustained focus. Whereas normally people have the ability to continue focusing on things when they want to, and they're not necessarily bothered by any external or internal stimulus. So, you know, if you hear a siren down the street, the person with ADHD is going to not be able to listen to anything other than the siren because it basically takes their focus away, commands their attention. Whereas the neurotypical person will just be able to kind of tune that siren out and continue focusing on, on what they want to be doing. So people with ADHD, they switch tasks too much or they hyper-focus and they don't have the control to basically regulate their focus. And how does that lead to a higher propensity 
for addiction? So there's there's a few ways, right? So neurobiologically, you know, there are certain neurotransmitters that are highly implicated, right? So there's kind of most notably like a lack of dopamine in the prefrontal cortex, which means that when someone with ADHD does a drug that releases a lot of dopamine, it tends to feel good and it, it generally feels better than it would feel otherwise for a neurotypical person. But additionally, there are sort of these psychological manifestations as well, right? So when you're in school and you're failing all of your classes and you're a kid, it's not great for your self-esteem. And so, you know, you, you sort of pick up on the fact that you're different from all the other kids. You pick up on the fact that you can't do the things that the other kids can do. You can't just sit down and do your homework. You can't organize yourself. You can't plan. So you pick up on all these differences. And, and I think school is really a big barometer of your success and how you feel in life. And so I think when you start doing poorly in school at a young age and don't understand why, it can really lead to depression and, and other things like that. And then, you know, when you are sort of older and, and find out about drugs and alcohol, um, those are things that you can do, right? Whereas you right, can't right. succeed in school. So I think there's sort of a few different um, pathways involved and a few ways that people um, get addicted in the first place who have ADHD. Um, and those are, those are just a couple that I can think of right now. Wow. So that can, can, can lead you down that road of you have a higher response to these chemicals. You may have a higher dopamine response, and then you have the self-judgment that comes from not being able to, to do the tasks that you want to do because of the stuff and wondering like, what's wrong with me? I'm, you know, something must be broken. So you have these, this kind of combo that leads to it. So then if someone has ADHD and now they're an adult and they're going to be doing TMS, mm-hmm. what's changing there? What's what's happening? So with TMS, you're increasing activity in the prefrontal cortex, which is helpful. I will say TMS specifically for ADHD, it's not always effective. And it's probably the, the indication that we have the least success with. I think there, there are generally better things for ADHD specifically, like neurofeedback and coaching and things like that. But with TMS, you know, you're, you're increasing resilience. So you're decreasing the stress response. So that's really helpful. So it kind of it gives you a higher threshold for which your attention will be pulled away at the end of the day. Right. So you, you can get, I guess what you said earlier, a little bit more of brain resilience to be able to mm-hmm. hold that attention. You're not under that stress response as much, which is going to, I guess, lower that ability when we're, when we're stressed, we're kind of focused in that fight or flight mode, I would imagine, which is, doesn't allow us to focus very intentionally. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that that's, that's fascinating. What about like, PTSD, because when I see PTSD, there's so there can be so much symptomology to it, like ruminations. You know, some people are having these triggering moments. It's such a huge, you know, nightmares. It's such a huge dynamic. How does it help that person? Because it seems like that's all over the brain. But, you know, I'm just making that up because it's all over the place. I might be wrong. But so I'm wondering about that. 
So when we treat PTSD, we usually kind of pare it down to specific symptom groups, right? So sleep dysregulation will be a pretty big symptom group, either, you know, sleeping too much or not sleeping enough. So we'll kind of look at that piece separately. We'll look at the anxiety component of PTSD, the resilience component. So all of that sort of goes into our analysis of how how to best treat it. Right. So you like get into certain specific areas of the brain and, and where you place that and get that that mm-hmm. area more active to engage it. Exactly. And that's really, you know, our whole idea is really to have these personalized treatment plans for everybody who comes in. So, you know, we'll look at We'll check in with people continuously throughout their treatment to see how they're doing and make sure we're on the right path and to make sure that, you know, if we get their sort of primary issues under control, like maybe we we decrease the depression pretty substantially, but also those secondary things so that, you know, once the depression is gone or is in remission, we want to then attack the anxiety, you know, then look at the PTSD and different things like that. So you start to do it over time. So how long does a TMS treatment last? Like how long do you have to do this? Because you were saying coming in at, you know, five days a week. So it's pretty intense, it sounds like. How long do you have to do that? And then also another question I have is how long does this last? Or does depression come back? Or do these symptoms return? Or is this a permanent change in the brain? Yeah, so in terms of how long people do it for, the standard course is 36 sessions. So you do, most people do five sessions a week for six weeks, and then they taper the remaining six sessions over the next two to three weeks. That taper is really necessary. It was, it's kind of this artifact of when the FDA approved TMS, they weren't quite sure uh, what it was. And they thought, you know, medications you have to wean off of slowly. So maybe the stimulation you do as well. You don't have to with TMS, it's just, but, but that is there. There's also a more expedited type of TMS, which is called accelerated TMS. It's a, it's a little newer, but basically this is like uh, an intensive five-day protocol of TMS where you do 10 sessions a day, but after those five days, you're done. And in terms of how long the results last for, in about 90% of people, they don't need any maintenance sessions. They don't need an additional course of TMS, but about 10% of people do need to come back at some point. It's a hard question to answer because depression is episodic in one's lifetime. And moreover, depression is often precipitated by stress and triggered by stress so that, you know, people may do okay for a while, but, you know, maybe there is a a significant death in the family plus a loss of job. And and sometimes that can sort of tip people over the edge into, into depressive territory again back into that to that state where their brain kind of goes to and that area of the brain starts to shut down again i guess so we were talking about earlier with depression and they're kind of back in that cycle right but the the good thing about tms is that we've heard that even when people do relapse in the rare circumstances that they do we're told that the depression is much more mild than it was in the past So even if their brain does kind of start to go back to that older pattern, it's not going to be as severe as it was initially. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I, I was as you as you're talking, I, I have another question. I'm thinking you mm -hmm. might not know the answer to this. Who thought of this idea? <laughs> like, let's put a giant magnet on somebody's brain and mm -hmm. and get it activated. Where did TMS come from? And I don't know if you know the answer to that, but I, I'm just mm -hmm. really curious. So it actually started in 1985 uh, in England, and it started as a way to measure muscle activity and the health of different spinal pathways. So it was used in neurology, and basically people would stimulate a part of the brain responsible for like making a limb move, like making your leg move, for instance. So they would stimulate that part of the brain and they connect an electrode on the leg to measure the muscle activity. And the goal was to measure like the health of these different pathways. And then, you know, in the 80s, we really didn't have many good ways to look at the brain itself. So it was kind of used as this rudimentary neuroimaging methodology where you kind of stimulate the brain and, you know, see what happens. And if it messes with your vision, for instance, you kind of know, okay, this part of the brain is roughly responsible for vision. Uh, and so, but about 10 years later in 1995, the use of functional neuroimaging became uh, much more available and used much more. And so that was, uh, at that time, there was the, this initial research that showed, hey, this one part of the brain, the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, is impaired in depression. And that's weird. It doesn't even matter what type of depression, unipolar depression, bipolar depression, postpartum depression, no matter what type, this brain area was, was always implicated. And so a researcher by the name of Mark George, who's at the University of South Carolina Medical Center, he's, he's kind of like the godfather of TMS, and he's ultimately the one responsible for where TMS is today. So he thought, okay, we have this way to create magnetic stimulation. We know this part of the brain's impaired, and it's pretty close to the scalp, so we could probably stimulate it. So let's see what happens. And so the first clinical trial done was in 1995. It was a very small sample size, I think, you know, five to ten people, and they only did it for about a week or two. But the results were positive enough that they then um, kind of used that research to to then run much larger trials and they saw, wow, this is not, uh, that wasn't just a random occurrence. This really is uh, helping people. Like this is doing something. There's some real hope here because I mean, mm -hmm. depression sucks. Yeah. It's the leading cause of disability worldwide. Wow. Yeah. And, it, and it's so, such a hard place to be that this really offers a, a lot of hope to people out there who may really be struggling. And, and especially, I think, you know, a side effect of depression is addiction, because if you're in that kind of pain, it's so hard to, to just live there. A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree to you. And I, I talk about this to whoever will listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here and sharing this message. You know, we think about addiction as this diagnosis on its own or this sort of separate disorder. But at the end of the day, addiction is really just a symptom of some other underlying mental health diagnosis. And so, you right. know, you go to any treatment center, you go to any AA meeting, and you can't find someone who's there who doesn't have a diagnosis of depression, anxiety, PTSD, or ADHD. It's just not there. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's so important to be able to see that because a lot of times addiction, I, you know, it's not as much today as it used to be, but was just framed as this lack of moral character or a lack of yeah. willpower or something. And what we really know now is that there is real biological things going on in people's brains that no matter how hard they think or how hard they work on it, it can be really, really difficult to change. So, right. I mean, it's so important. Exactly, exactly. It's really great to to be able to provide this, I think, especially after spending so many years just kind of watching people go through the motions and in, in uh, more traditional substance abuse treatment to now having all of these different options. And, you know, we'll see people sometimes who have been, they've done the stuff they're supposed to do, right? They've yeah. gotten sober. They have, you know, seen a psychiatrist, tried medications. They've been in therapy and nothing works. And it's, and there's almost an underlying sense of shame in that, like, I tried all this stuff. It's still not working. You know, what's, I did the steps. What's wrong with me? Yeah, I, I'm broken. A lot of shame. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's unfortunate that I think there's still not that much awareness right now just about what people's options really are. And really, there, there are so many more options than a lot of people realize. Yeah. And the research is backing those options up, which is really exciting. Like the evidence is there that some of these alternative therapies really work and have a lot of hope. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, TMS has been researched now for 40 years, but for depression, 30 years. And, and really the last 20 years, the, the research, you know, there's, there's now a mountain of research supporting it. Ketamine as well, the last 20 years ha has garnered a lot of scientific support yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. What about side effects of, of TMS? Are, are, are there side effects to it or things that we have to look out for? Or even what are some of the, the myths out there about TMS that maybe people think? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some people who think that, you know, TMS may give them brain damage when, in fact, it's been shown to be healthy for the brain and to increase, like, levels of healthy proteins and density of the hippocampus and whatnot. I think a lot of people think, you know, it, it sounds scary, right? It's kind of a mouthful to say. And I think a lot of people associate it with ECT or electroconvulsive therapy. And it's right. really quite different, you know. The, the only similarity is that they are these external devices that input something into the brain, but that's really where the similarities end. So, you know, I think those are probably the largest hurdles. And I think people are also kind of scared of like the, the time commitment and things like that and don't realize that there's a lot of people who do TMS and the sessions themselves are only three minutes whereas they used to take as long as 45 minutes. So by changing the actual frequency of stimulation, people can get a much more sort of dense amount of treatment in a pretty short time. Well, you're saying like they can do the TMS in only like three a three-minute session. So they sit in the, in the chair for like three minutes if it's tuned correctly, I guess, to the area that you need to, to stimulate. And I would imagine that as exactly. we do this, that's getting better and better and better um, mm -hmm. as, as, as the research comes out, as the experience comes out. 
Exactly. Exactly. That that three minute protocol was actually FDA approved, I think, four years ago now, which is really great. So, you know, the old TMS, it took 45 minutes. People were and it really made it much less accessible than it is now. Whereas now, you know, people can come in before work, after work, on their lunch break, uh, things like that. Right. Like that, I didn't, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Like three minutes to go in a chair and do this. I mean, obviously you got to show up and do all that stuff. So maybe more than three minutes, but it's not that 45 mm -hmm. minutes of, of sitting there to be able to do it. That actually really does increase accessibility. Exactly. It really does. And so what is it like for you to see these people come through your doors who may be in a lot of pain when they come in? And then, you know, they go through this process. What's that like for you? So it's frustrating and it's rewarding at the same time, right? So it's, it's, it's obviously just, you know, amazing to see people come in. And then a few weeks later, they are just a completely different person. You know, when people are severely depressed, you can, you can almost see it on their face, right? Especially in right. like a more, a more typical sort of melancholic depression, and then just, you know, saying hi to someone in the hallway and all of a sudden they're smiling and, you know, cracking jokes is uh, is just amazing to see. At the same time, you know, it's it's super frustrating to see people come in who have been suffering for so long who ask, like, if this has been around and, you know, evidence based for so long, why am I only hearing about it now? Right. Why yeah. hasn't my doctor told me about this sooner? And I have no answer for that. You know, like I, I've, I've done all I can at this point to, to educate professionals and to educate people about it. But it seems like medicine is a little slow to to switch in some ways. And so it, it ends up that slow transition, I think, ends up leaving a lot of people suffering for far too long. That maybe don't need to suffer. I can I can see like how you know it how hard that is to to see people come in who have spent maybe years in this depressive state struggling to just hang on, right? Just to be there. And yeah, maybe that could have been different for them if they had just heard about this or or known about this. I mean I think that's one of the driving forces of even just doing this podcast is to to get that information out there to people that there's these things that might help. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ben, I want to, you know, going there and just talking about helping people. I want to thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. But before we go, I always ask like one one question of everybody comes on, if you could say one thing to someone out there who might be suffering, who might be in pain or know someone who's in pain, what would you want to tell them? What would you want to say to them? I'd want them to know that they have more options than they realize. And that, you know, if you've tried the usual stuff, don't worry, there are still, there are still a lot more options to feel better. Absolutely. So don't don't give up. Don't keep looking. Reach out. Find these things. Investigate them. There are so many more options out there if you're struggling. If people want to know more about this, how can they find you? Where can they where can they get a hold of you? Yeah. So our company is called TMS and Brain Health. We have offices in LA, Las Vegas, and Sedona. 
And our website is www.tmsbrainhealth.com. Awesome, Ben. I will put all those links in the show notes as well at theaddictedmind.com. Ben, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom and sharing these possibilities with others out there. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com and you can get all the links to Ben's work and his clinics. And if you want to get a hold of him to find out more information about this, reach out to him. And a quick reminder, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, you think it's valuable, please share it with a friend or write a review in iTunes. I really do appreciate it. It really does help the podcast get found. And join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety and lots of how-tos for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.